Amen. You can have a seat. You know, all of our stories are different, and that's the way it should be. We have different experiences, different families, different education. We're in different places in life, uh, different uh, relationships with other people, and that changes our story. Even when we're thinking about, okay, how did I make the decision to follow Jesus? What is that story? Our stories, again, look very different. And we see that at work in Scripture as well, as we see people interacting with Jesus or coming to faith in some other way, and, and their stories are not all the same. And over the past few weeks, we've been thinking about some everyday people who had some kind of encounter with Jesus, and that changed everything for them. And they had an impact on the people around them. And today, we bring this series to a close. We're going to look at one more story And we're going to look a lot in Acts chapter 16. We'll get there in a minute, but if you want to turn there, that'd be great. We'll look at several verses there. But we're going to look at that story, but I'd also like for us to think a little bit about our own stories as well. What is my story like? What is your story like when we came to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Now, what I want us to see is I think there's one thread that runs through the fabric of virtually all those stories. And I want us to hear that together today for a couple of reasons. Number one, it helps us understand ourselves. It helps us get to who am I and what am I doing in my relationship with God. But second, it also helps us see how we can communicate the story of Jesus more effectively. If this one thread runs through all of those stories, then it's important for us to know so we can better talk to people about who Jesus is and what God wants for them and from them. So our story is in Acts chapter 16. Again, a little different from the rest of the stories in this series where we've looked at people interacting with Jesus. Today we're in the life of the church. Jesus has already died, been buried, raised, and then ascended into heaven. But we've got people working throughout the sort of the Roman Empire sharing the message of Jesus. One of the main characters in that story is the Apostle Paul, which you'll remember. And Paul went on these journeys, though he was based in the city of Antioch, which is in what we now call Syria. He went throughout the Mediterranean sharing the message of Jesus. And at one point in one of his journeys, he had this dream and he was called to go to Macedonia, which is north of Greece. Okay, we've got a map that shows a little bit of that. And he was called specifically to go to the city of Philippi, one of the major cities in this ancient kingdom of Macedonia. Now, when Paul got to Philippi, and he went with some associates, he was there with Silas. We know Luke was there. Luke wrote the book of Acts, so we'll see him refer to we and some of the actions. So he's present at this part of the book of Acts. These people went to Philippi, and most of them were Jews, and their normal practice was to go into a city to which they've never visited, and this is one, and go to the synagogue and sort of get acquainted with people there. But in Philippi, that strategy didn't work because there was no synagogue. And the reason for that was because there was not enough adult adult Jewish males to form a synagogue. So there's a very small number of Jews in the ancient city of Philippi. But what they did was they went outside the city gates and they would gather at the riverside for prayer. And so Paul joined them there. And he seems to have done that several occasions. But on one day on his way to the place of prayer, we have a woman who cries out. And this is what she says. So we're in Acts chapter 16, verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us, Luke's writing there, Shouting, and this was her words, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Well, that seems right, right? And we know that's what Paul was at work doing. But Paul didn't want her saying this. We might say, well, like, why would it be a problem that she was saying what Paul was there for and he was a representative of God? Well, there are a couple things about this woman that are worth noting that we find in the story. She was controlled in a couple of different ways. The first thing is she was possessed by an evil spirit. Okay, that's the beginning. In fact, Luke's words are she was possessed by a spirit, a python. And we say, well, that can't be a good spirit if it's a snake, right? And what's going on there is there's a lot of background to this, but when that word is used in, associate, in association with a spirit, it's, it's used in the way that a ventriloquist works, okay? So it's like this spirit is speaking and using her as a puppet. So the spirit speaks, she speaks. And what she's telling people is what's going to happen. She was believed to be able to tell the future because of this python spirit at work in her. And so people would come, and they would want to hear sort of their fortune. Well, she would tell it, but it worked this way. She was also in bondage not only to this spirit, but to people. She was a slave. She was owned by a group of men. And if you wanted to have your fortune told by this spirit, you had to pay up, pay these guys the price, and then <clears throat> she would tell, her for, tell your fortune. Now, here's the problem for Paul. You go into the city, you're a religious teacher. You really don't want a person with an evil spirit announcing your intentions. That's probably not the best evangelistic strategy, okay? So Paul really doesn't like this. And finally, he gets tired of it. We go down to verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And so even though she's still a slave, she is at least released from the bondage to this spirit that caused her to tell people's fortunes. Well, I'm sure she was happy about that and that changed her life. But there was a group of people who were not happy about that, the men who owned her, because this was a source of income for them. And suddenly it's gone. And she is not nearly as valuable as a cook or a servant girl in the household as she was a fortune teller. So they are not happy. In fact, they go to the magistrates in the city of Philippi and they begin to complain and they haul Paul and Silas in in front of the magistrates. And this is what we read down in verse uh, 20. They brought them before Paul and Silas, before the magistrates, and said this. This is their accusation. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Three accusations in that one little line there. First of all, they're Jews. Okay. Now, in a city like Philippi, where there are very few Jews, they're a small group, they seem a little weird, right? Because they won't eat certain foods. They won't worship our gods. They won't even worship the emperor. They go out by the river to pray. All this stuff sets them apart. Everybody thinks they're odd people. Plus, 
Anti-Semitism is not a new thing. It existed in the first century, okay? So these guys are foreigners, they're Jews, that's a problem. Number two, they're disturbing the peace. They're throwing our city into an uproar. Now the truth is, the masters of this woman are the ones who create this stir at the marketplace, but they're shifting blame. It's all Paul and Silas. And then finally, they're advocating customs they're not what we're used to doing. In other words, they're not from around here and they're doing weird stuff. Throughout history, that's been a real good way to sort of get a mob going and get people excited about somebody you don't like. And that's what they were doing on this day. So the magistrates hear all that and they say, okay. And they take Paul and Silas, they are stripped, they are beaten, and this would have been a severe beating. And then they call in the jailer for the town and say, lock them up tight. And that's what he does. He takes them to the very center of the jail and puts them in stocks. So here you've got Paul and Silas, which, you know, the stocks that they would have used would have been at best uncomfortable anytime, but after a beating like this would have been very painful. So they're stuck there. They've been stripped. They have no food, probably. They're stuck. What strikes me is what we read in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, what I can tell you is if that Luke were writing about Paul, Silas, and James Jones, the story would not have gone like that, okay? I would not have said, now is the time for a prayer meeting and a gospel sing, okay? That's not what would have been on my mind. I would have been saying, where is God in the middle of this? Like, why are we in this situation having been beaten and now we're locked up? And I would have been complaining, but not Paul and Silas. Instead, instead, they're worshiping God. They recognize that this moment, like every other moment in their lives, was an opportunity for worship. And so who hears that? All the other prisoners. And this is where the story changes. Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prisoners' doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. We think, wow, that's an incredible miracle that God has performed. I mean, he brought an earthquake to release Paul and Silas from prison. They can just, they can just walk out of this Philippian jail. Nobody's going to stop them. I mean, this is incredible that God has done this. But that's not the way it plays out. Verse 27, we hear this one person enter the story, this everyday guy, the jailer. The jailer woke up, I'll bet he did, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now the way it worked in a Roman city, if you were the jailer and people got away, you were responsible with your life, so you took your job very seriously. The prisoners, he assumes, are walking out of the jail, so he thinks, you know what, rather than face what the magistrates are going to do to me before they kill me, I'll just kill myself now and put an end to it. Verse 28, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Now, I'm not sure how that worked. 
I don't know if Paul talked to all the other prisoners. I don't know if their, their singing and praying somehow affected the people around them. But to me, it's just as great a miracle that this earthquake occurred as it is that, that Paul and Silas somehow convinced all these prisoners to stay where they were. I mean, it's hard to stop a jailbreak, right? But somehow everyone stayed in their place. And at that moment, the jailer recognized something was going on. And so verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I think it's a little hard for us to tell exactly what was on the mind of this Philippian jailer in this moment. Like, does he understand all the atonement theories that are at work to explain how the death of Christ somehow overcomes the power of sin in our lives? My answer is probably not. But what he does know is that he has witnessed something so powerful, so different from any experience that he's ever had before, that he's got to know more. Has he somehow heard this woman with the Spirit talking about Paul and Silas being people who are talking about the Most High God and are offering to show people how to be saved? Is that why he uses that word? Maybe. But what I know is he had to know what's happening. He had to have an explanation. He wanted to know more. And whatever's behind his question, what we know for sure is that Paul and Silas answered that question. Verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. So whether he understood everything about Jesus or not, Paul wanted to make sure. And so my guess is, if you look at the rest of Paul's teaching, Paul talked about how God had impacted him. He talked about the power of Jesus at work to overcome sin, to offer eternal life. Paul laid out the story of Jesus to this man and to his whole family that he's assembled. And here's how it played out. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What happens is that this man recognized that this God that Paul and Silas have talked to him about is a God that he can trust. And so he puts his trust in this God and encourages his whole family to do the same. And in that moment, they come to faith in Jesus and they recognize that the next step is to be baptized. And so that's exactly what they do. At that moment, immediately, Luke tells us, that's the direction they went. And so this whole family follows Jesus. Now, just quickly to, to tell the end of the story the next day, Paul and Silas are offered release. They say, hey, well, you know what? You didn't even have the right to beat us because, by the way, we're Roman citizens. Nobody happened to ask that. You can't do that without a trial. The magistrates recognize they're in trouble. But in the end, Paul and Silas are released and things go on. But for us, what I want us to hear is what we learn from this man. 
who trusted Jesus, who brought his family to hear this message. It's that thread that runs through his story and I think runs through the fabric of our stories as well. When we encounter God, we have a decision to make. And when we have an encounter with an almighty, all-powerful God who is at work, who is active in the world today, we are forced to make a decision. We've got to evaluate, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to respond to this? What happens next? Am I just going to say, none of that matters? Or am I going to say, this God loves me. This God made me. He offered his son for me. He's offering me forgiveness for all that I've done wrong. He's offering me new life. He's offering me eternal life. And you know what? I think I want to be part of that. When we encounter God, we've got a decision to make. And I think if we look back in our stories, most of us will see that was at least at work in the process, right? And it can happen in lots of different ways. Again, our stories are not the same. For some of us, and maybe you're in the middle of making some of these decisions right now, and you're evaluating. For some people, they heard the story in Scripture. Maybe you read it for yourself, you heard it taught, and you thought, you know what, this, this story is not like any other story. There is something at work in this story that is different from my experience. It's different from what I see anywhere else. This story of Jesus is powerful and life-changing. And so through the stories that we find in Scripture, maybe especially in the Gospels, the four Gospel writers knew it was important to write this down so that people could hear the story. And so you heard the story and you know what? You recognized, I've got to respond to this. My encounter with God is through the story and I've got a decision to make. For other people in the room, it may have sort of started at least with a relationship with someone. There was someone in your life and you thought, you know what, they've got something that I don't have. They are in touch with God in a way that I never have been. And I really want that in my life. I want to know God like this person seems to know God. So what is it about them? And then you asked and they told you. And through that person, you had an encounter with the God that they know, and it forced a decision. Or maybe God has done something amazing in your life. I mean, it happens, right? Someone that's not supposed to survive, God's at work and there's a healing there. Or you sense God leading you through what is a very difficult time in your life that you don't understand, and you know good and well you wouldn't have made it through it without the power of God at work. God is doing something in your life, and because of that experience, because of that encounter with God, there was a decision to be made. And you, just like this Philippian jailer, believed in God, and you understood what Jesus had done, and you trusted him, and you were baptized. But in all those stories, what we find is that the encounter with God forces the decision. Am I going to trust this God with everything I have? Am I going to trust this God with eternity? Am I going to trust this God with this life? But the encounter forced the decision. Now, today, we're at the end of this series. And one of the things that I really want us all to take from this story is 
that each one of these everyday people, this jailer, who seems like he had a pretty unpleasant job in my mind, a tax collector, a woman whose past is sort of checkered, each one of these everyday people had a tremendous impact on the people around them, maybe their family, maybe their friends, maybe the community around them, was impacted because they chose to follow Jesus. And God can use everyday people today just as well as he could in the first century. And so you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be an elder in the church. You don't have to hold some title. You can be an everyday kind of Christian and have an impact on the people around you. Because maybe you're going to help them have an encounter with God because of what's happened to you. And that same thread that is running through the fabric of your story even though the stories of the people around you, your family and your friends, their stories are different, that same thread can run through their story as well. Because they encountered God, a decision had to be made. But we've got to tell them the story. We've got to invite them to be part of God's story. Maybe that's inviting them to church. Maybe it's talking about what's going on in their life. Here's the thing. If you invite them into an encounter with God somewhere along the way, a decision's got to be made. Let's pray together. God, thanks for using us. We're sort of everyday people who've had an encounter with you and we made a decision. So God, help us to be able to talk about those encounters and help us to share them with the people around us because we know you want people to, to be part of what you're doing. You want people to be in a relationship with you because you love them so much. So God, lead us down the right path so that people will know you because they've been around us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.